You're welcome. It's great to be here. You may sit down. Um, it's, uh, it's great to be here. I've um, been really looking forward to it. heard a lot about you uh, over the last few years, so it's great to, to be here uh, at last. Um, I'm going to launch straight in because I want to make sure we, uh, we have time for, for everything. Um, first of all, just a little bit about, about us. I've come with uh, uh, four interns um, who are, are traveling with me. We just came from Hawaii where we did, yeah, I know, where we did a conference, Suffering for Jesus. And, um, and uh, we had an amazing time there with uh, the Hawaiian church. Um, it was just a wonderful bunch of people. And then uh, we're, after a little while here, we're off to South Africa, uh, where we're going to be... Are there some South Africans here? Put your hand up if you're South African. Oh, my... Wow. That's amazing. Well, we're going to a, a, a children's village for AIDS orphans called Live, which was started by some very dear friends of mine uh, who are doing an amazing work there just outside Durban in KwaZulu-Natal. And, uh, and so we're going to be away in total for about six weeks uh, from, uh, from home and from our church. But I love New Zealand. I love your country. And it's great to be here. Um, I've wondered over the years why it is that... You, you know, have you ever wondered why some folk, um, when they begin ministry, when doors open, uh, they seem really gifted for a while and they seem to be do well and then they, they disappear uh, and then there are others that you think, gosh, you don't seem so naturally gifted. You don't seem to be so, you know, and yet, and yet they're there till the end. And, and, and God uses them in amazing ways. And uh, I've always wondered, you know, like, what, what's the difference? What's the secret ingredient? What is it that happens? And then a while ago, uh, as I was reading through uh, the story of King David... Um, I, I, just some thoughts came to me, and I want to suggest them to you now. I want to look at the call of David and the anointing of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And uh, uh, Saul, King Saul had messed up, and the Lord says to the prophet Samuel, I want you to go to a little town called Bethlehem, to a man with a woman's name, and I want you to anoint one of his sons, to be king of Israel. And so Samuel went to Jesse of Bethlehem. And, uh, the, and, uh, and the, the Lord said um, to Samuel, uh, invite Jesse to the sacrifice that you're to make. I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, who was the oldest, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is such a huge lesson we have to learn. Uh, God doesn't use us on the basis of our giftings. He doesn't use us on the basis of our eloquence. He doesn't use us on the basis of our good looks 
although some of us, we happen to be anyway. Uh, he doesn't use us on the basis of our fashion sense, uh, again. Uh, but what he does is he looks not at the things that we look at, and human beings look at the outward appearance. So often we as human beings, we judge people by what we see. We judge people by not only how they look, how they present themselves, whether they're charming, whether they're sociable, whether they're photogenic, whether they're gifted. But God looks at something deeper. He looks at the heart. And if we can only get that, we would understand. Then Jesse called Abinadab, that was the second son, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And the point of this is that that it's usually the first son. Biblically, the first son gets the inheritance. Biblically, the first son is the one who is usually chosen and anointed and appointed to go and to, to, to do stuff. He represents the family. That is a biblical tradition that I believe needs to come back today. Because the first son in any family is always the best. Is always the best looking, the most gifted. Is always uh, the most intelligent. Is always the most sophisticated. Do you know God's anointing is always on the first child in a family? I'm preaching it. I'm preaching it, brother. You, you're like me. You say, amen, amen. You can see which, where I come in the pecking order. Some of you were saying amen before you realized where I was going with that, didn't you? <laughs> um, but that was the, the order, and, and it was a puzzle to Samuel and to Jesse. It's not Eliab, it's not Abinadab. And then Jesse had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he was puzzled, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's something wrong here. I don't get it. The Lord said, one of your sons, they've all passed by. Are these all the sons you have? And listen to how Jesse responds. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Doesn't that sound like he can't quite remember his name? There's, there's still the youngest. Um, uh, what's his name? But he's somewhere out there, the little one. You know, the runt of the family. He's out there looking after the sheep. And Samuel says, we will not sit down until he comes. And to cut a long story short, David comes and is brought before Samuel. And the Lord says he's the one. So Samuel anoints David with oil in the presence of his older brothers. How good is that? That was a moment that he would never forget. Can you imagine in the presence of your older brothers... Who, you know, you're the little one that's out there looking after the sheep, can't remember his name. And then in front of everyone, he's anointed to be king. What a moment. And I believe in anointing. I believe in the anointing of the Lord. But something very, very important happens to David. David makes a life choice straight after he's anointed to be king of Israel. And before I go to that, just to say, when it says... Uh, The the Lord has rejected the others. He hasn't rejected them as human beings. He hasn't rejected them for heaven. He's rejected them for a particular role. I know where I'm going. I know I'm accepted by God. I know my destiny and destination is heaven, to be with him forever. God has accepted me completely, except he has rejected me in one area. He has rejected me 
from the role of being a worship leader in his church. And if you had ever heard me sing, you would understand why I have been totally, utterly and completely rejected for that role. But that doesn't mean I'm not accepted for who I am in Jesus. And you see, for, for him, for, 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 for David, now just imagine, just imagine for a moment, if while I'm talking to you now, I'm talking, you're listening, and through that door, that door were to burst open, and suddenly David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, were to come in, stop the meeting, come up to me and say, Mike, stop. Her Majesty has died. Prince Charles feels he's too old to take on the throne. <laughs> William, William, uh, he just ne- he's got two young children. He needs to spend time with his kids for a little while. And there's no way we're going for Harry. <laughs> I have met with the cabinet and parliament. And we have decided that we want to ask you if you would be... This is a little fantasy. <laughs> we wanted to ask you if you would come and be the new prime minister, the new king... King of England, if that were to happen, if that were to happen, do you think, much as I love you, do you think that I would spend one moment longer here with you? Not a chance. I would be out that door. I would be at Auckland Airport. I would be getting a first class ticket back to Heathrow Airport. I would be going to Harrods and choosing the curtains and the carpets for Buckingham Palace. That's what would happen. I'd be there straight away. Do you know what David did just after he was anointed to be king of Israel? He went straight back out and carried on looking after the sheep. He carried on looking after the sheep. And it's in that place that God prepared him and taught him everything that he needed in order to be the great king of Israel. It was, it was looking after sheep. It was counterintuitive. And you know, there's three things about looking after sheep. There were three things. First of all, it was hidden. There wasn't any shepherd of the year competition in those days. Whether he did a good job or a bad job, there was no one to say, oh my goodness, David, you are such a, let's give you a shepherd prize. It was hidden. Nobody noticed. For some of us, it's really hard to do things that are hidden, but it's good for the soul. It's good for the soul. I'm a great servant of people. I'm one of the best servants you could ever find as long as there are people to see me serving. If there's no one looking, it's a different ball game. It's a struggle. When there's someone to say, oh my, what a great servant he is. Do you see the way he serves? Oh, I feed on it. But when there's no one to see, that's when the rubber hits the road. It was hidden looking after the sheep. The second thing about looking after the sheep, it was lonely. In those days, uh, they would have, uh, certainly for David in the area around Bethlehem at that time, he would have been on his own. He would have been looking after the sheep on his own. There's only so many conversations you can have with sheep. You know, he could have been, he, you know, do you notice all his brothers, they were around at the house? And then there's the youngest, oh, what's his name? Out with the sheep on his own. It was lonely. 
it was lonely as well as hidden. And the third thing is it would inevitably have been boring. I mean, can you imagine at three o'clock in the morning when the sheep were asleep on the backside of a hill? You know, that. I mean, what, what could David do? It was hidden, it was lonely, and it was boring. And everything we try and do is try to get away from the hidden, lonely, and boring places. And yet, it's in the hidden and lonely and boring places that God prepares us for our destiny. God prepares us for our ministry. God prepares us for what he wants us to do. It's in those places. It's in the places where no one's looking. Do not despise the day of small things because it's in the day of small things that God prepares you for the big things. If you wait until the doors open, I keep meeting, you know, I mean, I work with young people and every year at our festivals, young people come up to me, bless them, and I love their heart. I love their passion. You know, a third 13-year-old will come up to me and say, uh, God's told me to tell you that I'm to be the next great worship leader, and uh, I'm to make an album that's going to go around the world, and I'm to lead worship at your festival uh, for, for the next few years, and he's 13, and I think, bless his little cotton socks. I love his, I love his passion, I love his, his, but you just don't get it. You just don't get it. Or, or, or actually, a couple of years ago, a, a 16-year-old came up to me and said, the Lord's told me I'm to take your place. <laughs> and, uh, and you know what? If the Lord has told you, if the Lord has told you, get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready in the hidden, the lonely, and the boring place. Because it's there where no one's looking, where no one sees except God. How do you think God looks at the heart? God notices the heart. God looks at the heart when we in the hidden places where, where we're not doing anything for anyone else's approval. God prepares us there. And God prepared David. Where do you think God prepared David to be the greatest worship leader of Israel? David wrote some of the greatest worship songs Israel ever sung. I mean, there's, there's one or two of them that are still high in the CCLI charts. He's, he, he wrote probably his most famous worship song, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where do you think he wrote that? I don't think he wrote that in a palace. I think he wrote that on the backside of a hill at three o'clock in the morning, practicing his heart while the sheep were asleep. Where do you think he got the vision for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You see, in the hidden, the lonely, and the boring place, God prepared him. God prepared him to be king of Israel. Um, I'll just say this really quickly. I'm looking at the time. But um, uh, uh, have you heard of uh, Matt Redman? He's written lots of worship songs. Well, Matt was in my youth group when he was, from when he was 13 years old. And, uh, um, and you know, he, he is not a natural musician. He really isn't. And uh, do you know what he did? Is God spoke to him when he was a young man. And God said, I'm going to use you if you will pay the cost. And do you know, Matt, he spent hours and days and months and, uh, in, his, in his room practicing his guitar, worshipping the Lord in the quiet place, 
worshipping the Lord when no one was looking. Every night before he went to bed, the last thing he did was read his Bible. Every morning when he woke up, the first thing he did was read his Bible. He didn't do that to impress anyone. He didn't do that for, for any other reason, that he just wanted to be prepared. He wanted to be ready so he could be obedient when God said now. And he prepared and he was faithful in the little things. If you are faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in big things. If you can't be faithful in the small things, you'll mess up the big things, honestly. Where do you think David learned how to be a warrior? In just the next chapter in John 17, there's the delightful story of his battle with Goliath, the giant. And, um, and David uh, goes to bring provisions to his brothers there, there in, in the war and uh, he, he finds out that, um, uh, that there's this giant Goliath and they're all scared of him. Saul and all the armies of Israel are scared of the giant. And it's interesting that Eliab, his older brother, um, he absolutely slays him in front of everyone. He says, worse the effect of who do you think you are? Um, in fact, I'll read it. Why have you come down here, said Eliab, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you notice how bigger brothers, they belittle older brothers, the younger brothers? You know, with those few sheep, you're not even a big shepherd. You just got a few sheep in the wilderness. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, listen to David's response. I've heard this from every younger brother you can imagine. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? Don't you love that? It's so real. It's so family. And you see, his older brother Eliab belittles him. Now, do you know what? David could have got bitter. David could, because of his treatment from his older brothers, he could have held a grudge. But you know what? If he got bitter, he would never, ever have got better. He would never, ever. God, I've seen folk who, who stay on the periphery, in the twilight zone, on the edge of church. And I think, why are they there? They could be used so much. They could be so gifted. And then I get to know them. And I find out that 23 years ago, they were overlooked to play drums in the morning service. And they've never forgiven anybody since. It's like, no, I've ne I'll never, ever, I'll never let go of this. They'll, they'll, they've, they'll, they've, they've never forgiven, and they stay there. And they feed their bitterness, and they feed their resentment. And that means that they become, they disqualify themselves from God using them. So there's David. He comes to the battle and he sees that everyone's afraid to fight. So David goes to Saul. He says, I'll find the giant. I'll beat him. And I'm paraphrasing here because of the time. But, but King Saul says, what are you talking about? Have you had a look at him? He is huge. He has been a fighting man since his youth. And you are a little boy. And then this is, this is David saying about his qualification to find the giant, fight the giant. He says, your servant has been practicing Kung Fu. <laughs> he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't. He says, your servant has been looking after sheep. <laughs> now, that is not how you'd get into the British Army, and I'm fairly sure it's not how you'd even get into the New Zealand Army. Your servant has been looking after sheep, and looking after sheep qualifies me to beat and to kill the giant Goliath. But then David explains, when I was looking after the sheep, and if a bear or a lion came to attack the sheep, I would kill the bear and the lion. This giant will be like them. 
This Philistine will be like them. And what he says was, in the hidden place, in the lonely place, in the boring place, where no one was looking, defending the sheep, I learned to fight. And now I'm ready. And then finally, finally, and I love this, uh, David, in looking after sheep, he learned all the lessons how to be a patient shepherd of Israel how to be a patient and wise and good king of Israel. He learned all the lessons in the secret place, in the lonely place, in the hidden place, in the boring place. Do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise the, 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 the times when no one but God is looking. That's the cooking pot. That's the place where God prepares you. We are the McDonald's society, aren't we? We want everything instant. We want everything straight away. Um, uh, you know, a Big Mac, do you have Big Macs here, you must do. You know, you know, you 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 know all the nutritional advice says they're rubbish. You know that I mean they come quickly. You order, and I don't know about you, but if, if, if well, I don't don't go anymore to McDonald's. But but when I used to go, if I didn't get my Big Mac and, and large fries, supersized immediately, I'd be cross. And you know what? You get what you pay for when it's instant. But when I'm back in England, there is a restaurant I go to called the Sahara Lounge. It is one of the best restaurants in the world. It does Lebanese food to die for. George, the head waiter, and I have become best friends. I'm there so much. And I'm telling you, they do, they do this chicken that is unbelievable. It melts in your mouth. I have never in my entire existence had chicken like it. And, and I've, I asked George, I said, how do you, how do, you do it? How, how does that mean? He says, it's the chef's secret recipe. He marinates the chicken for three days and three nights in a special mix of marinade. And then he cooks it slowly. God wants to cook you slowly. He wants, he wants to marinate you for a long time. Because he has a better destiny for you than you being the human equivalent of a Big Mac. He wants you to be chicken that melts in people's mouths. He's going to cook you and marinate you slowly. And you know what? Sometimes when we're faithful in the small things, when we do things where no one's looking, then we, then we are prepared. I want to come into land. We're telling you one story. That's from a long time ago. 19 years ago, um, I was invited to speak at a, a youth camp in Finland in a town right in the center of Finland called Uvascula, which was by a big lake. And uh, when I was there on the second day, a young man, uh, he was 16 years old, he came up to me and he said, could I talk to you please? And um, I said, okay. And he said, could we talk somewhere private? I don't want anyone to overhear. So that afternoon, we went and sat on a bench overlooking the lake and this kid, um, he told me his story. And he told me how um, his dad used to be an alcoholic and would come home drunk in the, night, in the nights and would beat him and his mum up and how he felt powerless to protect himself or his mother. And then one day when this boy was nine years old, um, his dad left home and never, ever came back. And he said, to this day, I've no idea if he's alive or dead. And he said, my feelings are so conflicted. I'm depressed. I'm low. I feel empty. I struggle to believe that God could possibly love me. 
And he said, and he said you know, I, I've made a vow. I'm never going to get married and I'm never going to have children because I've got my dad's DNA in me. And I don't want to take the risk of doing to my wife and kids what my dad did to me and my mum. Obviously, I listened, I talked to him, we prayed. The next day, he asked if we could talk again. We went through it again. The third day, just before I left to go back to England, he asked if we could talk. We went back and sat on the bench. And I was wearing uh, this jumper that I had just bought, which was my favorite jumper. It was the best jumper I'd ever bought. It was, it was brilliant white wool. It was thick, and it was my size. It was extra, extra, extra medium and uh, and it was just it fitted me perfectly and I was so proud of this jumper I just loved it and and this kid Timo his name was and um, uh, he was just in a t-shirt and after a while of us talking Timo said to me hey could we go inside because um, uh, I'm, I'm feeling a bit cold um, and and then as he said that I felt the Lord say to me and I felt the Lord say to me it wasn't like hear ye hear ye God calling Mike are you receiving me tablet of stone on its way down duck it wasn't anything like that. it was just this thought came into my head that wasn't my thought and it, the thought was I felt the Lord saying to me lend him your jumper and my honest response was no <laughs> let him get his own jumper this is my jumper but you know what the Lord's like he just insists and he keeps going on so in the end I said hey Timo if you're cold he borrow my jumper. I took my jumper off and, 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 and he put it on and, and, and he said, are you, are you sure? Uh, and I said, yeah, 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 borrow my jumper. And he said, won't you get cold? And I said, well, I have central heating. I have <laughs> inner layers of which you know not. And then, and then he put the jumper on and honestly, it looked ridiculous on him. It was like he, you couldn't see his arms for the sleeves and it was like a dress. And then we talked. And then after a while, as we talked, he said, he felt the jumper, and he said, gosh, this is a really nice jumper. And then to my horror, the Lord said to me, give him your jumper. <laughs> At this point, I was seriously considering becoming a Buddhist. And, the, <laughs> and then I had this battle, and in the end, I said, look, if you like the jumper, Timo, keep the jumper. And, and he was like, are you serious? Are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and take the jumper. And so... So he took the jumper, I said goodbye, I got on a plane, I flew home minus my jumper, and feeling rather resentful. And uh, that was 19 years ago, 16 years ago, I was back in Finland, and I was speaking at um, a conference for, uh, a pastor's conference for the evangelical church, uh, churches of Finland. And when I arrived, I was introduced to my translator. I sat down with him, and we went through what I was going to say to see if there were any phrases that were hard to translate into Finnish. And I spoke, and he translated. Now, I spent half my year traveling in other countries. And may I tell you, may I tell you, one of the most boring things about what I do, there's lots of great things, but one of the most boring things is everywhere I go, there's always someone who thinks that I'll be interested in looking at photos of their family. And it's like... And it's like, and on about the second day, my translator said, can I show you a photo of my wife and kids? And I thought, oh, here we go again. So, I, you know, I, 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 I've learned how to do this. So I, so I said, oh, my life has been waiting for this moment. Um, please let me see. And then he showed me a photo of his wife, and she said, isn't she the most beautiful wife you could ever wish for? And I said, that is amazing. I mean, I'm just amazed. How, how did you manage to acquire a wife like this? This is just incredible. And then he looked pleased, and then he showed me his two daughters. He said, look at my two daughters. Aren't they the most gorgeous little girls? And if I'm really honest, his wife and his daughters, they were all right, but they weren't anything. You know, they, you know, they were fine. 
Uh, but I said when I saw his two daughters, I said, please, please, please take the photos away. They're blinding my eyes. Is it, are they girls or are they angels? I cannot tell. Anyway, we went through all that and then he put the photos away. We got to the last day of the conference before I was due to fly home. And just before the last meeting, my translator said, before you speak, I'm going to speak. And I thought, I'm sure that's not how it's supposed to work, but okay. So he got up and he spoke in Finnish and in English so I could understand. And what he said completely shocked me. He said, um, I just want to say something. He said, um, my name is Timo and I'm 32 years old. And 16 years ago, when I was 16, I attended a camp uh, by a lake near Uvascula in the center of Finland. Mike was the speaker at the camp. I don't think he recognizes me. <laughs> and then he said, and I sat there for three afternoons, and Mike listened to me for three afternoons. And as I told him about my alcoholic father and what he used to do to my mother and I, and then he disappeared. And I told Mike about my vow that I would never get married and have children because I was scared that I might do to them what my dad did to me and to my mother. And then he said, and on the last day, I said to Mike, I was cold, and he lent me his jumper. And I said to him, oh, this is a really nice jumper. And then he said to me, if you like it, you can keep it. Have my jumper. And he said, I was stunned. Mike left straight away, so I couldn't say anything to him. But in all my life, I'd never been given anything. Uh, when my dad was alive, he never once, my dad never once gave me a gift. And after he left, my mum and I agreed we were too poor, that we wouldn't bother with presents. And he said, this stranger listened to me for three afternoons. And then when I said I liked his jumper, he gave it. And he said, and I could tell on his face that the jumper meant a lot to him. But he, <laughs> but he still gave it to me. He still gave it to me. And then he said, and then he left. And then Timo leant down to the side of his chair and out of the bag, he took out the jumper. And he said, I've kept this jumper for 16 years. It changed my life. When I received this gift, I suddenly thought, maybe God does love me. Maybe God does have a plan for me. Maybe he sent this man in order to show me something of God's love and to give me hope. And he said, I began a journey that has, that has come to this. And now I have this wonderful wife and two beautiful daughters. I'll show you the photos later. You know, and all of that. And he picked up the jumper and he said, he turned to me and he said, I never thought I would see you again. But I kept this jumper for 16 years. Today, I give it back to you. It's done its job. It's done its job. That jumper. That jumper is sitting in my home as a prize. I had no idea. I just thought 30, whatever it was, since 19 years ago, I just got a little whisper. Give him your jumper. How good is God? Years later... I discover what was going on. It wasn't public. I never thought I'd talk about it. I never thought it would have the result it has. It was hidden, lonely, boring. But God was doing something. Sow seed wherever you go. Love wherever you are. 
Be kind when no one's looking. Be generous when no one notices. Invest in obscurity because that's what God is like. That's what God is like. And also, that is the best preparation you could possibly have for God to use you for the rest of your life. When, when he opens the door, be ready, be prepared, be seasoned. And Father, I thank you for this group. I thank you for this church. I thank you, Lord, for their passion, their enthusiasm, their joy, their warmth. I thank you for all the things you've done in them, and I thank you that the best is yet to be. And Lord, I pray for your blessing upon them. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to use them. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that not only would they know your anointing on their lives, that you would anoint them in the presence even of their brothers and sisters, but Lord, also, you would prepare them in the hidden places, in the lonely places, in the boring places, for the destiny that you have for them and the life that you want them to live for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just to say, thank you. Just to say, uh, tonight, um, uh, we'll be back for the evening. Uh, Going to preach a very different sermon, some very different. Looking forward to seeing some of you again. Uh, it would be nice if one or two of you came because it would be boring without you. And uh, I'm now off to the city campus. So, see you later. <laughs>